Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Green Room. We're here in Disrupt TV, where I'm here with my amazing co-host, Vala Afshar, and, of course, our great guest. We're going to introduce everyone in reverse order, and, of course, tell us where you're coming in from and what you're talking about. So, Patrick, go ahead. Hey, I'm Patrick Hines. Uh, I'm from New York City, and I'm talking about my new comedy memoir. It's called Failure is Not Not an Option. It's awesome. I love it. Um, thank you for joining us. Raj, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about? Hey, Ray and Vala. Thanks for having me. I'm joining you guys from the Bay Area in sunny California, which we're complaining it's still 38. I'm, I'm sorry to the rest <laughs> of the country. Uh, I'm going to be talking about all things manufacturing and plugging our amazing manufacturing event called Ruderden that Vala is going to be speaking at as well. Oh, look at that. Excellent. All right. Marta, Patricia, we'll start with you, Marta. Uh, hello, uh, I, uh, I am from Argentina. I am sitting in Buenos Aires today. I will talking about venture capital and entrepreneur ecosystem in Latin America, and especially the importance of gender diversity into these sectors. It's hot, hot, hot in BA, as we know. And Patricia, where are you coming from? I'm from Spain, Valencia. I'm the GP of Next Year Ventures and AI Fund. Okay, we are all invited to invest in and uh today we want to talk about the role of a woman gp in the whole world it's not easy that's awesome well hey thank you very much we're gonna do the count and of course are you guys ready three two one Welcome. Thank you for enjoy, uh, uh, thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on X at Disrupt TV Show, and you can also follow our monthly newsletter. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. I see Ray on TV every day, CNBC, Bloomberg, CNN, Fox Business. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter, X, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. <laughs> Thanks a lot, him, my amazing co-host, Bala Ashtar, the Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence, but more importantly, the author of this new book, it's the number one seller on Amazon. And of course, it's a very important book talking about what a new mindset would be like for unlimited business success. And more importantly, it's a great book and a guide into your personal life. But executives around the world, 
Paul attention, pay attention to every one of his inspirational tweets, and of course, his writings on ZDNet, his keynotes and speeches around the world, and more importantly, of course, on business TV networks like Bloomberg. So thanks for being here, but more importantly, it's not about us, it's about our amazing guests, and we have two to kick it off today. Bala, who do we have? Ray, <laughs> it's a privilege for us. We have two legends, icons, of the venture capital industry in Latin America and Spain and the globe. We have Marta Cruz, co-founder and general partner at NXTP Ventures and Patricia Pastor, founder and general partner at Next Tier Ventures. Marta is co-founder and general partner of NXTP Ventures, a B2B startup investment fund focused on Latin America. Through her three funds, Marta has invested, listen to this, invested in over 200 Whoa. early stage technology-based startups that are making a positive global impact. Marta's investment portfolios have included six unicorns, Ray, six unicorns. Additionally, Marta is the founder of the Entrepreneurial Women Community in Latin America and the Caribbean. Marta serves as the first president of ARCAP, the Argentinian Entrepreneurial Capital Association. Marta is an active member of the UN Women and serves as the co-founder and president of Reinvest, a community of women investors focused on Latin America, Central America, and the Caribbean. You can follow Marta on X at Marta underscore Cruz, C-R-U-Z. Welcome, uh, Marta, to the Shrap TV. Um, thank you very much for inviting me here to, to have this conversation. Thank you so much. And uh, Marta is joined with another icon of the industry. Uh, Patricia <laughs> Pastor is founder and general partner of Next Tier Ventures, a new venture capital firm that specializes in investing in artificial intelligence and B2B software companies. Patricia is well connected with all B2B companies. With over eight years of experience in the VC industry, Patricia has managed a portfolio of over $100 million and supports numerous founders and startups in their growth and scaling. Before launching Next Year Ventures, Patricia led the innovation strategy of the Valencia City Council, where she transformed the region into a thriving hub of entrepreneurship and technology. Ray, last year I spoke at the Valencia Digital Summit, 20,000 entrepreneurs, wow. the vibe, the energy, the innovation, unbelievable. Uh, as a serial entrepreneur uh, herself, Patricia has founded several successful companies and is now an active angel investor in the Spanish ecosystem. She's also a passionate advocate for women in investment and founding member of Startup Valencia and the Valencia Digital Summit. You can follow Patricia on X at Patricia Pastor, letter G at the end. Welcome, Patricia, to Disrupt TV. Good to see you. Thank you, Vala. I read your book and I finished one month ago. Incredible, incredible. <laughs> Thank you so much for the gift because I love the book, the book Every ecosystem and community is ready now, boundless, and they are. Yeah. Thank you <laughs> I, so much. That's Marta, awesome. Marta and I, we need to write the book too. Yes, in the future, in the near future. You <laughs> really do. You have five books in you. With, with <laughs> hundreds of startups, six unicorns, hundreds of millions Amazing of dollars. Amazing opportunity. Amazing. Yeah, Amazing. Yeah, let's start at the beginning. How did you guys get into venture capital? Uh, oh no. well, uh, I, I started in venture capital uh, almost by by chance, I say, because I, I started uh, like a co-founder a digital uh, marketing agency with my partner Ariel Arrieta in 2009, and uh, we immediately started investing like an angel investors, 
Uh, and after investing in eight companies in an early stage startup, we recognize the incredible opportunity we have in front of us, investing in early stage startup, technology-based startup focused in Latin America. Uh, but why? No? Uh, first of all, because Latin America is one of the largest uh, economic globally, uh, with six, uh, 600 million people and 6 trillion of GDP. Uh, the population is twice that the United States and the GDP is 40% Wow. of the Chinas and, and twice uh, the size of India. So it's a big, a huge, huge market. Wow. Uh, second, uh, we were entrepreneurs, the, the founders of uh, NXTP were entrepreneurs, and we understand exactly the challenge that the entrepreneur face when launching the new endeavors. And uh, simultaneously, we recognize uh, the multiple problems Latin America face that could be addressed by technology, by new companies based on technology. And the only uh, professional that can resolve this kind of thing were the entrepreneurs. Uh, and finally, uh, the, the, the third point was we met with Y Combinator and Techstar at that moment. Uh, they, oh, yeah, Maya. They, yeah, they founded the, the Y Combinator one year before us. And we say, we want to say like a Y Combinator or Techstar from Latin America for the rest of Latin America. And um, yes, this motivation uh, uh, made us uh, the strategic decision to become the first venture capital firm uh, from Latin America for the rest of the world. Wow, this That's is an amazing crazy. story. And Patricia, how did you get started in this? Well, uh, in the past, I, uh, I be entrepreneur, no? I started my first company uh, 20 years ago. I do a lot of mistakes. She was, <laughs> and, 14. Uh, she was 14 when she started her company. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I learned a lot of lessons. And uh, I become business angels. I uh, try to, to do my best to help incubators, president startups, accelerators. And suddenly I have the opportunity uh, to uh, make my first fund. This one now is my third fund. And this opportunity gives me, um, I think, what um, I want to do is to help a startup, no? is to invest, but to be a strategy investors and, and help them because I think it's not only money, no? It's, mm. it's, it's to help not only in the business plan or the strategy, no, is something emotional because uh, they need so much resilience, so much efforts, no. And to be a good investor, I think, is to be um, a good colleague too, no, and, and a member of the team, no. And uh, it's why my passion to invest is is more of the side of the entrepreneurs than the investors. Makes sense. Yeah, no, that's. And, you know, Spain is amazing uh, place for entrepreneurs to thrive and grow. Um, Barcelona, I think, is the fifth most active uh, investing city in, in Europe. And, and, and Madrid is sixth. But the first place I met you was not in Barcelona or Madrid. I met you first in Malaga. Yeah. And it was an amazing event. 18,000 folks, incredible energy. And then the next place I met you, it was your event, which was the Valencia Digital Summit. Again, tens of thousands of incredible entrepreneurs. That's where I met Marta as well. So it seems like both of you are have a deliberate effort of expanding the ecosystems beyond just the major hubs. You're trying to create Silicon Valley-like uh, ecosystems outside of the major cities. 
Can you talk to us about the purpose of expanding beyond the cities? And I suspect it's because there's a lot of talent, a lot of uh, engineers and a lot of incredible innovation, not just in the major hubs. Yeah, in, in, in my case, for example, uh, we consider uh, when we decided to invest, to invest in the best team, in the best person in charge of the of the company uh, or the founding team in charge of the company, we, we talk like uh, A-plus uh, founders. Uh, it's not important where the founder uh, is come from. Uh, no. The important, they, they are looking for resolving a problem in Latin America and in the world too, because uh, of course my fund has a lot of LPs that uh, invest in us because we are into Latin America and we help Latin America, all the countries in Latin America to become better, okay? Yeah. Uh, and the, the, we try to expand our voice uh, around the region, around the world, because the entrepreneur and the venture capital ecosystem don't have any limits. Okay, uh, for us, the war is our country, really. This right. is the, the, the reason why. This is for our NXTB uh, venture. This is for Patricia. This is for WeInvest, the community for women investor across, uh, focus on Latin America. And this is for, for Emprendedora Lag, the community of women, high impact women entrepreneurs uh, that uh, is important to stay in the, uh, around the world and uh, spread the voice and uh, generate a big, big network because the networking for us is the most important in order to mm. find good entrepreneur, find good investor, make fundraising, uh, help the entrepreneurs uh, in the, the way to do business development and all the things that they need, as Patricia told first. No? And Patricia, because of you and, and Marta, I suspect... Is it easier for women entrepreneurs in the technology space now that you two are around? Uh, because when you were entrepreneurs, I suspect we didn't have uh, Next Year Ventures and NXTP helping network and connect and make sure that there's gender diversity in technology. Do you feel a sense of pride because you're now here helping uh, more diversity in the tech space? What happened well, with men's, Bala? What happened with men's? <laughs> We're sorry. Ray and I are sorry on behalf of all men. <laughs> the stories, but the stories, the stories when you meet, you know, someone to invest, someone that want to invest in you, you know. But which gets questions, no? As you, it's not the same if you are a man, no? And it's incredible. And also, for example, the, you are a woman, the geography, but what happened? Uh, as, as Marta say, uh, ecosystem is global. You invest in a startup to be globally, to scale in all the world, you know? And it's, it's no matter where you are come from. It's no matter if you are a woman or a man, no? I think the success um, is, is to help them and to have the good connections to help them and to open new market, new VCs, you know? It doesn't matter anyway. But I think there is, a vicious circle, no? If women don't invest in VC women and VC women don't invest in entrepreneur women, we are lost. Because it's true that men don't help us very much, okay? 
Yes, this is not a question, sorry, no, but this is not a question to, to say that woman uh, in front of men or, or no, I don't know, pelean the quarrel, no, uh, but uh, it's important to work together, no. Uh, the most uh, sustainable startup in the long term are, are the startup that has gender diversity founder team. And on the other hand, uh, the VC that has at least one woman in, in the founding team are more profitable. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is important to mention. It's not only a question I have because we need to uh, women inclusion. This is a question of business, really. It's yeah. not only, uh, I'll say, I want equal uh, gender diversity in this industry. It's only uh, if the figures show us the difference between an startup only with men or only with women woman, and the VC team only with men and will, or at least with, with one woman in the founding team. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sorry. No, Go ahead, Patricia. Yes, and we need ambitious women, independent women. They take risks, you know. They 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 win the loop, and and it's so necessary. And I don't know is culture. I don't know. And and I think that the problem is over the world. You know, it's not better in San Francisco or uh, you know in Argentina. No, it's over the world because if Vala, I build a farm with you, <laughs> and we are in an interview, the question they ask you are not the same. The question they are asking, you know, and that's the problem. No, is a question of trust. The, the yeah. trust is the most important, and it's only by prejudice. You don't need to have prejudice. You need to have trust in your track, uh, in your background, in your experience. You know, and and I, I feel an ecosystem builder. You know, and uh, I, I do a lot of network because. You never know, no, where is uh, your, your sure. secret sauce with someone, no? And um, sure. for example, I I, um, I meet Marta in Argentina one day. We have a super feeling, you know. And after that, we have built our relation. We uh, have a start to talk to co-invest. They told me about Winvest Foundation. Ah, I can be ambassador in Spain. I help you, know. It's it's that you make relations, and it's that where business is 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 the the enter now in the in the Absolutely. in the ecosystem. You are the yeah. ultimate connector. Uh, I have <laughs> I have watched you in action. All you do is try to get like-minded, smart people to connect. And after again, combine you two, two, you know, hundreds of startups, six unicorns, hundreds of millions of dollars. You've clearly established your reputation as investors. Go ahead, Ray. And you had a question. Yeah, no, I think I think it's important, right? I mean, you're you're engineering opportunities for serendipity, opportunities for people to connect. Uh, those are important, uh, and that's even more important, especially in really bad and down years. I mean, take last year; it's probably the worst year in VC ever, right? If you look at the number of IPOs, uh, maybe two or three were significant in the tech world, uh, and if you look at you know where funds were at, I mean, you could saw the clawback in sustainability funds. You see the clawback in other sectors across the board. Uh, people's start dates are being pushed out there. What do you tell founders when this happens, right? These are waves and investment cycles that occur. But what do you tell founders like in, in the middle of that wave? And, and what's your investment thesis, especially in a down run? So I'll start mm -hmm. with you, uh, Patricia. In my case, I, I, I feel that will happen, you know. I feel that um, after the COVID, you know, something um, 
will be not uh, work good. And I prepare my portfolio to that, no? And I say uh, them, um, uh, be careful with your runway. Um, maybe yeah. the yeah. the next year uh, could be uh, so difficult. Um, have your uh, round open um, every time, you know. Um, don't uh, close open around now. Feel that you are um, open for any entries of any VC because uh, something, a rumor, you know, um, and the situation uh, can uh, fall in in any time, no. And and I think that is a good VC, no, to to help this portfolio to be preparing for a crisis or something, no, or a pandemic is difficult, no, because. <laughs> but the the crisis economic you feel when you know when you are. We, we, we will uh, leave valuations, full valuations, incredible valuations. You feel that the market mm, is not, you know, very equilibrated now. And um, but it's true. If some startups don't do that, after it's complicated because uh, a VC need to help all these startups. But yeah. it's the life of a startup. If you don't resist the crisis. Maybe uh, it's better, you know, that you take um, important decisions. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And when you look at that, Marta, what do you see? Well, the, the, the market in the last year changed a lot, changed a mm. lot, of course. I mean, 5% um, interest rates, high interest rates, changed everything. Yes. Well, the, the changes were in all the ecosystem, no? the volume of dollar invested, the, the type of VC we have in each region, uh, the type of entrepreneur, for example. No? Uh, when I started in 2011, the total of capital uh, invested in VC in Latin America was 148 million. Wow, what today <laughs> is small. What today is one transaction uh, in 2018 <laughs> exactly. when I founded my second fund, uh, this uh, figure rise to two billion. In 2021 yes. was 15.7 bi billion, no? Wow. And uh, now in 2023, then the figure is so small again. It's uh, according something similar to 2008. Okay. But on the other hand, we have another kind of uh, type of uh, venture capital in Latin America, for example. We have more local venture capital, more regional venture capital, and more international venture capital that are looking for, for good opportunities in Latin America. <laughs> okay. And on the other hand, uh, the other change was the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur today are more sophisticated sure. and they understand the the, the 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 game in in another way but as patricia said um, uh, our recommendation for our startup for our portfolio companies is please don't burn money now is the time <laughs> to uh, to have money in the bank cash in the bank cash is to, key. Uh, exactly the cash is the key to extend the runway for a lot all the time that you can until you go to the next round, because the valuation decreases, of course, because the global economical situation, the, the, the interest rate, and all the, the, the variables that are in place in our ecosystem. But uh, the good news for me is we come back to the uh, real business. 
to the principles of the real business, no? The business that can live without an uh, immediately round of investment for the next two months, for example. Uh, and then, and I say the entrepreneur really are more sophisticated and are looking for investor with a lot of capacity to do to do follow on. Investor that add value in all the things that they need. The, yeah. I mentioned yeah. before fundraising, business development, recruitment, uh, mentoring, coaching. Because the entrepreneur needs different things in different stage of the of the development of the startup, but they need a lot of things, and we have the responsibility uh, to help them in all the stages. If you yeah. are a good investor, of course. Which yeah. both of you are, which both of you are. Uh, it's it's amazing. It's a privilege for us to learn from two icons. Thank you so much for uh, uh, inspiring, educating, and most importantly, connecting us to help the ecosystems thrive. Thank you so much. Thank you, Patricia. Yeah. Thank you. No, we Thank really you appreciate much. the work that you're doing as well, uh, advancing startups and founders, uh, especially women. So Marta Cruz, co-founder and general partner at NXT Ventures and Patricia Pastor, founder and general manager at Next Tier Ventures. Thank you so much for being here. You can follow him on X at Marta underscore Cruz and Patricia Pastor G uh, on X as well. Thank you so much for being here. Thank this you. Thank you. Two legends. Ray, when you're in Spain and you're in the presence of Marta and Patricia, I mean, all the entrepreneurs gravitate towards them, you know, because they've invested in hundreds of companies over the last decade. So I can they're very well-known entities at these uh, startup uh, uh, conferences. So I can imagine and, uh, the networks and folks they've built and uh, really the relationships, oh, yeah. just like this guy I, down I, here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, only the best and brightest. Uh, and our next guest is, is no exception. Raj Badarinath is Chief Marketing and Product Ray Officer. This unique, unique title, Chief Marketing and Product Officer at Rootstock Software. It was Peter Drucker that said there's only two things that matter in business, innovation and marketing. So Raj decided to have both of them. Uh, in his unique tools role, uh, Raj is finally doing what he's always wanted to do, which is to sell what he builds and build what he sells. I love that. As Rootstock, uh, Raj does by determining what manufacturers need and then translates those insights into ERP product strategy and roadmap, bringing awareness to Rootstock's manufacturing ERP and how it's enabling customer success. He's got over 25 years of experience and he's recognized as a SaaS expert across multiple verticals and industries. You can follow Raj on Twitter at Raj, Raj Mataz. I love that. R-A-J-M-A-T-A-Z-Z. Welcome, Raj, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, Lala and Ray. It's lovely to be here. You guys do such an amazing job. I'm so glad to be on this show. <laughs> We're happy to have you. I mean, Raj, we've, 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 got, we've grown up through the ranks together. So it's definitely <laughs> fun to see you here. Congratulations on all the success. Um, Thank you. You know, a lot of work that's going on there. A lot of times on this show is really about thought leadership, understanding where the trends are, where the markets are headed. Um, you know, Rootstock isn't a company that we have spent a lot of time with in the past, uh, but we have seen on the edges, really on the manufacturing, especially in the Salesforce ecosystem. Um, what I really wanted to, on your end is really get an understand of a little bit what's new, what's changed at the company. Uh, yeah. And of course, where you're taking that direction because you guys uh, have reemerged uh, and, and we see you in a lot more opportunities. So. No, it's a, it's a great question. Look, Ray, you know the space um, almost more than anyone else at this point. You've, you've followed the manufacturing industry. 
when was the last time the ERP market had a challenger? You know, the typical, <laughs> if you look I'm at the thinking, right? The, <laughs> you know, besides the typical names, like, you know, this is a space which is a $57 billion industry that really is badly begging for disruption. And one of the things that we found was, look, there's a, a market demand here because the typical manufacturer put in their ERP system when they had the firstborn child. And now the firstborn is graduating. They're still on the same ERP. So we see a generational shift here where, you know, there's moving to the cloud and having Rootstock being natively on top of the Salesforce platform makes it super compelling for this whole industry. So what ended up happening in a nutshell was we were backed by Griffin Investors along with Salesforce Ventures. Uh, Griffin, for those folks who don't know, uh, is a late stage growth equity company. They have about $9 billion in assets. So we found the right kind of investor. Uh, they're focused on the manufacturing sector um, and they basically invested in new management, putting you know resources in go-to-market, sales and marketing, product development, and so on. So we can actually create the engine to take on some of these large giants. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, we just did a we just did a MuleSoft uh, study where we interviewed a thousand CIOs to learn more about their enterprise uh, tech stack, um, and nine hundred ninety some odd enterprise software applications on average, uh, and with a lifespan of only four years with the exception of ERP. <laughs> so, right. you know, everyone else is refreshing. Everyone else has AI embedded in machine learning and computer visioning, <laughs> running smart robotics, natural language processing, all of that. But this is a space where you guys are differentiating yourselves because you're keeping up with all of the other enterprise applications that are quite modern in terms of how they service customers. And you've been in the, you know, in the middle of all of this. So, you have incredible deep insights into this manufacturing space. What is the state of manufacturing? Can you kind of share with our audience? What can we expect present day? And let's take us three to five years from now. Right. What, what can we expect from manufacturing software providers? Well, well, we look at globalization, which has been running for 50 years, is coming to an end right now. So it's the old expression, globalization is dead. Long live re-globalization is what we're looking at. <laughs> So look, let's let's not make any mistake here, right? So from a from a US standpoint, you've seen what happened during the pandemic and everything that got stuck, right? So there's a distrust in China as being the single manufacturing hub for the world. Clearly, election year is here. There's a China plus one strategy that's going on, and there's an incredible rewiring and reglobalization of supply chains that's happened as a result of this. Every government you know, state entity that we see right now are doubling down in investment in the sector. So manufacturing is, you know, the salt of the earth, right? This is the bellwether for GDP growth. You've already seen over half a trillion dollars of investment that's coming in, the IRA Act, the Chips and, you know, Act, et cetera, et cetera. What that's happening is there's been a Cambrian explosion of manufacturing and it's not the your grandfather's manufacturing, right? We're talking no, about yeah. Yeah. you know EV technology, renewables, battery technology, and so on. And Ryan Valley, you guys have seen this kind of happen. I will tell you this: in the next five years, right, where the countries are going to be, especially the Western countries, we will be very, very different, right, compared to where we were five years ago. So I'm super excited by not only the investment that's going on and really the the amount of activity that we're seeing in manufacturing, and they're not going back to how the world was 20, 30 years ago. 
you know, this is really important too. And, and I think uh, what you're seeing in this marketplace is not just that shift in where manufacturing is happening. Uh, manufacturing's moved away from just being about transactions. Mm-hmm. Right? It used to be about automation. It used to be about getting stuff in place, automating that workflow and those conversations. Uh, but there's a lot of information and insight that's sitting in, yep. in these yep. transactional systems. And I think you've heard me talk about it. It's really about signal intelligence and our ability to actually go from data to decisions, how you figure out pricing or what you think about in demand, right? That signal is important as we look across value chains. And it's not by industry. It's retail manufacturing distribution are one value chain. And those signals ultimately are going to power things in large language models and small language models. And so we see a future happening there. What's this thing that you guys are talking about around the signal chain? How did it come about? And what is this manufacturing signal chain? You know, Ray, you said it so perfectly. It simply is a way of connecting demand signals to your supply chain. Oh, I and, didn't even know that. Okay, great. <laughs> right? And it, it, it's, it's, look, we wanted to simplify the story for where we think the world is going to be in the next 10 years. Right? Mm, and yep. what we found was, look, there's a a very interesting split in manufacturing right now. The front end, the demand side of manufacturing has been digitized for the last 10, 15 years, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, look, you can, before you go to bed, right? You can pick up a mobile phone, you can push a button and Amazon will have it delivered for you next thing in the morning, <laughs> right? So the digitization of how you accept orders from all these channels, marketplaces, etc., cetera, have been, you know, really, we've invested a lot. But the supply side, which is still very much people-oriented, logistics-oriented, physical atoms, right, where bits you know, are faster than, than, than obviously on the atom side, that is still a challenge. So yep. what we try to do is to say, okay, if you want to really build a, a decisioning layer on top of the data, well, you got to create the data layer first. You got to collect the data first, right? So how do we do that? That's the signal intelligence that you spoke about. You need a layer of all of that. We're not trying to solve that problem. But what we believe is once you have the data in a centralized place, guess what? For machine learning, which feeds upon data, ERP has 67% of all of enterprise data in one single place. Now, we've seen a lot of GPT-like use cases and so on, which is all about unstructured. But really, when it comes to structured and predictive analytics, and we're talking about manufacturers who are essentially looking for real ROI use cases, we believe that bringing all the signals together and creating a decisioning platform on top of what Salesforce provides with data platform is the future. And that's what we're betting on. And that's that whole concept of bringing demand capacity and supply in one platform is what we're calling the signal chain. Yeah, and 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 not only you're building um, uh, maybe the most intelligent ERP platform in the world powered by AI and ability to harmonize data, not just structured, but unstructured and do it across multiple channels. Uh, As a CMO, your team, marketing team, is trying to ensure all your stakeholders are aware of these these inflection points in the industry. Part of that is education. You produced, Rootstock produced an incredible survey of 300 manufacturers, North America, Europe, trying to understand the impact of AI Um, and uh, very comprehensive report Uh, Very insightful. 82% of the respondents said that they're going to invest strong, strong investments in 2024 in AI. And in fact, uh, one in five or one in four of the respondents, manufacturing executives said they're looking to invest between 26 to 50% more uh, in AI technologies. Now, at the same time, the report spoke to skills gap that exists. There was a chapter about the executive's concerns about skills gap. 
confidence in data quality is low. Uh, yep. So, you, you know, every AI project starts with a data projects. But manufacturers were not afraid of AI in your survey. You know, only 12 percent, only one in 10 showed some fear in terms of the impact. Nine out of 10, the smart ones. Sorry, my opinion. Uh, know that this is electricity for the 21st century. So you have a conference coming up. And I'm curious, yeah. as the, the, the head narrative person, the CMO, what type, how much of the conversation in your upcoming converse, conference is going to focus on this incredible technology that's going to reinvent and, and impact all industries, all companies, all geographies, that being AI? Yeah, look, I think it's a, it's a key topic for us, Vala, in, in terms of what we're going to be talking about. But we want to take a broader perspective and understand that, look, manufacturing as an industry is not a bleeding edge vertical, right? Let's be clear. They, you know, are industry that is uh, are very methodical and deliberate in terms of technology adoption. <clears throat> and they believe in, you know, they believe in maths.com, not Tinder, right? So they yeah. want to make sure that they're looking at all the dimensions before they make the choices. So we want to give a broader perspective. In fact, we have great set of speakers. Well, you're speaking as well. And Ray, we'd love to have you the next time for sure. Because, you know, we want to expose our manufacturing audience to the latest and greatest of all of this, which includes things like machine learning and AI, but also the the core bread and butter. How do I improve operational efficiency? How do I improve productivity? How do I do things about skills gap? There's a huge bunch of folks who are all retiring, right? There's all yeah. these 20s, kids yeah. in the 20s who are joining the organization. How do you transfer that experience? How do you take like manufacturing planners who've been doing this for 40 years and suddenly give it to somebody who just graduated how do you take that institutional knowledge? And this is where I think AI can actually help in taking some of that experience and really have recommended and next best actions within the tool itself, right? Those are the kind of, kind of things that we think about investing in. And this is what we'll talk about in the event. I look yeah. forward to learning. I'm a student at your conference. I'm just there <laughs> taking notebook uh, full of notes. So, <laughs> no, no, and, and, and it, no, it is important, right? All these things are shifting. Uh, the generational shift is the big one, right? I mean, we've got so many folks that are leaving and that knowledge is about to go away. Uh, and, and you're going to see that pick up in the ML side. But, you know, one, one of the other piece that's really important is really the, the shift that's actually happening, not just as we repatriate manufacturing, uh, mm -hmm. but the type of manufacturing we're doing, it actually requires less people. It's more automation than before. That's right. uh, and it's more, uh, it's smarter manufacturing, right? In many cases, the additive elements uh, of manufacturing and the real-time nature of manufacturing uh, ha have shifted. And, and so the ability to actually deliver manufacturing at scale, whether it's a chip plant or whether it's a t-shirt factory or whether you're just actually putting together ball bearings, right, all across the board, uh, people are being able to create more customization, more batch, uh, and, and the ability to actually deliver uh, what people need in, in real time. How does that shift what the requirements are, right? Because a lot of these old manufacturing MRP systems are I mean, I don't know, like they're 20 years old. You're right. They're 30 yeah. years old in some of these cases. <laughs> Easy. Is that enough of a catalyst for people to make the shift? You know, I, I think they're going to make the shift, Ray, uh, whether they like it or not, just because of the, the, how quickly the markets themselves are changing, right? Yeah. So you talked about MRP, and that's, in fact, one of the key areas where we're investing in. We're looking at reimagining MRP in an AI age. What does that look like? So I'll give you a very simple example, right? And this is from the classic textbooks of manufacturing, right? There's something called lead times when you do MRP, right? You oh, know, yeah. when you place an order, it takes a while. Yep. Funnily enough, MRP systems 
do not learn over time. There's a no. lead time that's usually stagnant. And that stagnant lead time is what got us into trouble during the pandemic because sure. it required a human being who was actually physically putting in lead times based on his or her experience. What we're trying to do is to take this experiential knowledge, look at historical data, and make MRP lead times dynamic. Just by doing that, you can improve inventory turns, and that saves you millions of dollars, right? I mean, very often, we think about something dramatic that's needed in manufacturing for AI adoption, right? We're taking the opposite approach. Look, let's start small, but let's start where it matters the most to your bottom line. And you know where mm -hmm. things matter is things like this. If I can help you not you know, exceed your inventory costs by pre-ordering stuff, if you just delayed this by five days, you can actually get the overall process going. You can reduce costs by like 20%, 30%. That's fantastic. And that's what we're working with our customers on saying, look, tell us what you really need. Let's tell us build AI that matters for you. Let's not build this academic, whatever, that will solve everything, right? The hype of AI will not work in, in manufacturing. You got to be much more real to this. That is yeah. amazing. That is yeah. amazing. I look forward to uh, attending your conference. And, you know, thank you for the in-depth research and surveys and content that you produce because it's a space where there's tremendous innovation. And we're lucky to have you as a partner at Salesforce. So thank you so much, Raj. Definitely yeah, no. appreciate it, Alap. Thank you for sharing that. And, uh, and more importantly, hey, Rue, one last question for you. Yeah. You're going up against uh, the larger established player, right? Uh, what does that look like from a, from a edge? Do you come in at the edges? Do you come in as a full replacement, right? And how are you targeting the next generation? Many of these are family businesses and yeah. folks are in the piece of modernization, right? Yeah. So, so like, you know, you're taking it over from your parents and now you're yeah. in charge and now you've got the whole technology platform, right? How's that sale working? You know, it, it is such a fantastic question. And I, I'll tell you this, we wouldn't be able to do this if we went, you know, by ourselves without Salesforce. Remember, the, the big change that's happened is Salesforce, is it's a, it's a platform battle, right? People are making choices between, not between CRM and ERP, right? Back in the day, you remember when we were both in PeopleSoft, that, that was the case, right? But yep, yep. what's evolved right now is it's a full stack, right? What do you, which platform do you trust? And what's increasingly happening is as Salesforce becomes much more well-known in the market, the next generation wants to be associated with something cooler. Salesforce is a cooler brand, it's a much more approachable, it's much more easy to grow with and so on, right? So the idea that we can now seamlessly extend the CRM investments and so on that the Salesforce team has done into ERP into one platform, it resonates like crazy with these guys. So our sale is not going up against, you know, head on against any of the larger ERPs. We're starting with the mid market where, you know what, frankly, the boundaries of uh, the expectation is actually pretty good. The product market fit works really well. And over the next few years, you'll see up going up market. And that's naturally going to happen as we become um, much more mature in some of those requirements. We, we look forward to the journey. We look forward <laughs> to the journey, for no, sure. We're here with Raj Badaranath, Chief Marketing and Product Officer at Rootstock. Follow him at Twitter at Raja Mataz, best Twitter name in a long time. Thank you for that. <laughs> so you can follow him on back there. And uh, hey, thanks for being here. So take thanks, care. Thanks, Raj. Cheers. Guys. <laughs> uh, wow. Really bright CMO, CMPO, Chief Marketing CMPO. Product. CMPO. 
Yeah, we I like have it. I like a it. slight emergency with one of our guests, so he's not going to be here. Um, so you and I can just chat a little bit about what's been going on in the marketplace uh, over the last few days. Oh, okay. Well, I hope Patrick Hines uh, is okay. I hope he's able to join us in uh, future shows. Yep, we'll uh, see him in a future show, and he'll be out there. But uh, but yeah, so but big trends, big trends in AI, big trends in automation. We see things in the headlines, and uh, I'm looking here at the Constellation Research Insights page. If you've not been there, that's where all the latest news is out there, uh, especially in the B2B world. It's uh, picked up by our 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 executive editor in chief, uh, Larry Dingen. He actually says he's actually put stuff out there. But there's a lot going on with language models, a lot going on with partnerships, conversations that are picking up in the space. Uh, you know, we want people to take a look. So if you want to know what's the latest that's going on AI in the enterprise, check out the Constellation Research Insights page. So Vala, you're uh you just came back you just came back from India and you met with all of the technology service providers. What's the general theme of where they're looking to invest, how they're looking to compete? What was what was top of mind as you met with all these you know uh, global companies providing IT services everywhere? Yeah, there are three big trends. One is the fact that last year, everybody's budgets and projects were stalled because of AI. People pulled budgets to do POCs. People rejiggered their plans to talk about what happens when we're in an age of AI. And so while, you know, I'll, I'll push a little bit back on the World Economic Forum for calling the fourth industrial revolution because they called it too early. It was not the digitization aspects, but the digitization aspects gave you the ability to enter this age of AI. And so everybody realizes that AI is bigger, like 10x bigger than the internet. And because of digitization, we had that path forward to get there. That means everyone is trying to figure out what is that response to AI and where that automation occurs. And so we're seeing actually a shift in terms of what the offerings look like. People are trying to figure out, do I need more people? Do I need less people? What happens to the pyramid? And so the system integrators and service providers are all trying to figure out, can they actually be more productive with AI? I had the opportunity pre-Christmas to talk to someone in the space and I asked them what what did they anticipate in the future and in the conversation it actually came out really well it was actually fascinating they realized that they were not competing with their competitors FTEs they realized they were competing with their competitors bots you're not competing with FTEs but you're competing with bots and so that's the second thing as everyone's trying to figure out how they can actually scale uh, to be able to deliver that level of automation. And then the third piece, which is really hard to comprehend is, we are humans in a world of machine scale. And machine scale means like we're operating at this level. And what's actually happening is humans are actually operating at this level. And so we work always and continue to be the bottleneck. Yet, hopefully, we are still in control of the process. And so people are trying to figure out the most important question is, when do you insert a human in the process? Because if you don't figure that out, everything breaks. And so where are the controls? Where does the human belong in the process? Yeah. And so those are probably the three big things we learned uh, talking to it's those. It's fascinating. Guys. It's fascinating. I, I saw um, Benedict Evans give a keynote. He was a former Andreessen Horowitz partner and futurist author, great, great mind. And he said that the current state of generative uh, AI for line of business or working professionals is you have access to interns. <laughs> And, and, and I remembered when I was CMO, I actually was very deliberate about hiring smart interns in the Boston area. I had Harvard students, MIT students, BU, Northeastern, UMass, 
all these students. Uh, at some point, I had you know twenty some odd interns, and I remember assigning work to them. Maybe it was for gathering information for a blog or a presentation or copy for the web or creation of a mobile app. And ultimately, I would vet their work. Even if they were an MIT grad student, they were interns. They produced highly quality work after some time. You know, you had to coach or mentor them. And by the end of their six-month, one-year, two-year, ten-year, you still were involved but less involved because they were smarter, they were faster, they were better. With this generative prompting and access to this human history captured to you in models, Benedict Evans said, it's like you have 10, 15, 100 interns that work for you. Yes, you, you still do. have to intervene, but you can get great initial draft available to you. Uh, and, uh, and so competing in, at machine scale, competing against chatbots and, and algorithms, I think today folks that are leveraging generative AI capabilities, whether it's in sales, service, marketing, commerce, whatever line of business, manufacturing, um, you just have interns. <laughs> I, 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 I completely related to that analogy. Um, and over time, these interns are going to be ready to be onboard FTEs because their work has been vetted long enough. They've gone through the nice iterative process of producing trustworthy, relevant, precise, meaningful content. Um, so the cost of creating a word, a sentence, a paragraph, a document is heading towards zero. <laughs> uh, and you have to be ready. You have to be ready. And then I heard Jensen talk about NVIDIA's strategy for the last several years. And he said what NVIDIA realized is that computing in our lifetime has been to retrieve information. So computing systems were designed for pure retrieval. You go to your phone, you touch a a button, bunch of electrons go to a server farm somewhere and it retrieves the answer for you. Now we've entered the world where most of computing systems will be for retrieval and generation. So they have to be retrofitted again in the same real time of you push a button, but not only you're retrieving, but you're retrieving new generated personalized content at that same window of real time. So, and this is, and, and that was fascinating to me. Like, you know, he broke it down, like this whole nature of computing from retrieval to retrieval of generation and that inflection point we're witnessing right now in the past, uh, you know, in the, in the last year or so, certainly at scale. Um, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's fast. So it's no, good no, to see India and other countries and companies thinking about the importance of it. Like you said, 10X, 100X, you know, the web or, or mobile or any other wave of innovation we've experienced. <clears throat> What is most interesting is the fact that every organization realizes they need to be here, but they don't know how much data they need. And so back to your earlier point, let's say we have 85% accuracy in customer experience. That's pretty good, right? So instead of having four people, we can hire three people. Uh, instead of actually solving a thousand cases, we can solve 10,000 cases, right? Increases your capacity, reduces your demand. If you need to, you can adjust your what you need to do. But 85% accuracy in procurement is horrible. It means we're going to wreak havoc in the supply chain. 85% accuracy in finance means somebody's going to jail. 85% accuracy in healthcare. Wow, you know, people die. And so billions of dollars are about to be invested in projects where you don't know what level of precision you need for your stakeholders to be able to trust, right? And yeah. that's the challenge that all these 
companies are going to face. Uh, and even worse, you just said it earlier, like all this knowledge, right? What Jensen was talking about. Well, here's the deal. Nothing good is going to be publicly available. It'll be Capital One ads. It'll be like, you know, Taylor Swift offers and Apple, right? That's it. Like there's nothing good on the web. We're about to enter the dark ages of information in the internet after we- By the way, we're not we're not dunking on Taylor Swift. The last thing Disrupt TV okay. needs. I know, I know. Everybody keeps coming after that one. But, but the point being is- Ray lives uh, about 10 that. minutes from San Francisco's, uh, you know, 49ers- <laughs> place so yeah, yeah i know who he's rooting for anyway go ahead the, you're the, right yeah, the yeah. publicly available data won't be there so what do we yeah. do right so we actually believe the future is what we call data collectives right people are going to build retail manufacturing distribution and in these private networks that's where you get those signals and so that's where the beginning of this is going to happen but if you're not part of a private network that information won't be there and even worse as a futurist projecting out what we're going to see is that you know, humanity is not going to be able to learn from that information. Today, we have patents, we have trademarks, and we use that to protect IP and foster innovation. In the future, it's all going to sit in people's private networks, right? The language models and insights coming from AI and ML are going to be there. And so we might actually even see a change in the patent system where an idea that fits this category, well, it has one millisecond patent protection. Right. Someone might have a minute patent protection. You might have an hour patent protection. You might have a day patent protection trending all the way out. Otherwise, no, no good happens. Your public knowledge and public good goes away. So, so this is like wild. Don't say, Ray, don't tell that to me. December, uh, two months ago, I received two U.S. patents from Salesforce. So, you know, this I'm, will be good uh, for a while. I, I'm counting on those patents to help my company for 17 years. So yeah, yeah. No, no, but yeah, we will no. have patents and yeah. insights that are gonna be very different. So for example, like all this healthcare research that happens, right? Some of it might actually be go going into the public good. So you might see a trend analysis that says this disease with this treatment actually creates this kind of scenario. And that wouldn't, would no longer be owned by pharmaceutical companies. It's sitting in a data of population health, right? So yeah. this is the kind of like shift that we're gonna have to actually deal with. And the scary part, None of the policymakers get it, nor do they understand what's going on. So, but yeah. But anyways, that's, that's kind of the news surprise, from the field the, as to where we are. The emerging tech. And of course, to add on top of that, I just read a survey, um, enterprise survey that said only 4% of the data that business has today is ready for AI models and algorithms. So 96% of the data and this data is going to double in volume in the next 24 months. So it's going to be less than 4%. It reminds me, 72% of Earth's surface is water, 72%. But only 1% of that water is safe for consumption, drinking water, 1% yeah. of the 72. And that's just a finite amount. It's 70, The surface of Earth is going to stay at the 72% range, hopefully, and not have major variances. In business... If you're thinking about data needs to be like water, clean, accessible, affordable, and that volume is going to double on like the surface of the earth. And right now, only 4% is good for AI modeling. What happens when it doubles? We might be at a point where only 1% of the data we have We're out of data. is any good. We're out of data. Synthetic We're out data, of data is not going to be enough. We're, We're also out of, out of power and energy, right? You know what the most efficient model for power consumption to intelligence is? This is 30 yeah, watts. 20 watts. Is it 30? I thought it was 20 watts. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. You and I, yeah, maybe yeah. 30 watts. Yeah, I don't know yeah, about other yeah, people. Yeah. They could be running at 20 watts. 
but yeah, that's no, kind of you're right. You're right. So, you're totally so it's, right. it's going to be totally interesting right. to watch. So we'll see what that's the funny. age of AI looks like, but we are living in the middle of it. So, but hey, what do we have next week? So it's uh, so this was episode uh, 352. We have, uh, for those of you keeping count, we've interviewed uh, 1207 guests. Next week will be episode <laughs> three. We're, we're numbers podcast. We're, we're next week is episode 353. We have Team Eon, CEO, founder of AI Banker. We have Kunal Agarwal, CEO of Dope.Security. And we have Jerry Colonna, author of a new book, Reunion, oh, yeah. Leadership at the Longing to Belong. That's so Tim, Kanal, really, and Jerry, really two CEOs and, uh, and a best-selling author uh, next week. If it's uh, Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you, everyone, for watching, and we'll see you next week. Take care, Bye, everybody. Everyone. See you in the green room. See you, Marta, in the green room. Bye.